Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And I'm a little bit afraid because once we finish recording this podcast, there will be two that I have to edit because I am woefully behind due to the fact that buying a house, have finals, and lots of other things going on. But never fear, these podcasts will be posted eventually, and... The fact that you're listening to it now means that it's been posted. And if it doesn't ever get posted, then you won't hear my voice. And all of this will have been a costless, long-winded statement. Stephen, how are we? Uh, not too bad. I'm very, feeling very solipsistic now with that uh, that slight ballad that you just composed. Good, good. Sam, mm-hmm. how about you? Um, I'm doing well. There's there's nothing to report. I saw my mom this weekend. So. Lovely, lovely. Doing your filial, doing your filial duty. It's always good. Filial du- duty. And going to Broadway, which was was fun very what fun. did you see on broadway aside we from saw... you know the the most degenerate uh products of the violent city obsessed with perversion uh, you have but... a very strange view of broadway as in, in terms of city you mean the city of america because if i'm not mistaken you live in the beltway <laughs> <laughs> yes but this is a city of tradition and and uh neoclassical buildings so I believe I am uh, slightly inoculated from right. the, the the greatest horrors that America has to offer in New York. Okay, well, no, so it was interesting. My mom wanted to see a Broadway show, which is fine, because they're fun. I enjoy musicals. And so we went to one of her favorites, which is Chicago. I know nothing about Chicago, but that's funny to it's, see Chicago in New York. Chicago in New York. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it was it was actually pretty fun, but um, I mean, it's about it's about um, uh, vaudeville in the twenties in Chicago, obviously. But it's basically a like the costumes are extraordinarily provocative, and the the themes involve affairs and copious sex and murder and all kinds of stuff, and. It was, I mean, it was actually a fun, it's, it's a clever story, but my mom was like totally into it and it was completely unexpected. And that was probably the stranger part of the whole evening. That's, that's what cities do is they inure you to, as I said, violence and perversion. And you're just like, oh, this is, this is normal. This is fine. And you know, you're just chips of your soul flaking away, never to be recovered. It was a satire. It was a satire of that. Okay, I feel like that's the full back. But then it's ironic and it's worse. Isn't that right, like, Steven? No, it's fine. It's a satire. That makes it okay. Also, just of all the plays or musicals or movies one could see with one's mother, that I gotta say, that that, that, that one's unfortunate, uh, to have that theming there. That's yeah, that'd be wrong. Yeah, she she re- she requested it and got the tickets and everything. And actually it was there bits of it were very were very fun and entertaining. And other Which bits were a little bit awkward. Anyway, uh, the humorous right. bits. <laughs> uh, Good Steven. Steven, what are you drinking right now? Oh, I am drinking uh, some nice apple cider. Uh, it has ostensibly expired. The the the, the gallon jug has uh, slightly expanded, but uh, it's it, it still tastes good. So that's cool. Stephen, living on the edge. Sam, how about you? Um, I'm drinking something that looks like apple cider, but isn't. Evan Williams, Black Label. Perfect. Bourbon whiskey. I've, I've let my supply of Evan Williams run out to my um, great chagrin. So I, alas, have just the, the tiniest snifter of uh, some ruby port that I will enjoy this evening. Uh, I have some semi-fond memories of port. More like semi-memories. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> yeah, pretty much, man. Pretty much that. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, well. Um, all right. So this is going to be sort of a unusual wrap-up podcast. Not a whole lot to 
to go through here, except for uh, summing up our impressions of Ideas Have Consequences, and then finally moving on to Stephen's Adventures at the Notre Dame Ethics Conference. So let's start off with Ideas Have Consequences and sort of our uh, additional reading packet for the discerning listener. Depending on which edition you have, you, you may or may not have the afterword of this book, which is uh, sort of, I think, subtitled How Ideas Have Consequences Came to Be Written, or something to that effect. And it more or less just goes through a brief history of the text, of its writer, where it all comes from, some of the ideological uh, roots and and influences on the writer of this book. So I'm just going to briefly summarize a couple key points from it, and then uh, we'll go into our final thoughts on this classic of right-winged Americanism. Let's start off with the writer, who Richard Weaver, who published this book when he was an English professor, single and 37 years old, on like a one-year contract at the University of Chicago. His past is is, is interesting ideologically. He was an international socialist uh, for a while, but then sort of it finally had a break um, with Marxism. The quote of his to a friend is, uh, he's junking Marxism as it's not founded in experience, end quote. And you can sort of think of him, or at least I've thought of him over the course of this book and over the course of reading his mini biography here as sort of like a early post-liberal or someone who's over liberalism just a lot faster than a lot of other people in the U.S. are. Although, you know, this is probably something that pops up every once in a while, even though sort of the triumph of liberalism as defeating communism had yet to flower. If one influence on him was socialism, international socialism. The other angle is agrarianism, uh, which is another resurgent strain that we see popping up in the U.S. repeatedly over time. I'll just point out that agrarianism is generally associated with Southern uh, agrarianism, sort of lost cause, South type philosophies, at least in my experience. And that's a lot of it. Uh, But there's also, you know, much less uh, there's versions of agrarianism with with less baggage. I'm, I'm thinking here like Wendell Berry for example, critiques of big agriculture, localism, you know, talking about how the way that seeds and seed copyrights work. The Front Porch magazine uh, run by someone that a few of us know, Jeff Bilbro, friend of the extended family. Um, So all that to say is just that Weaver had this agrarian influence. I I am curious, are any of these non-Southern agrarian examples that you listed, are any of those an influence on Weaver or was he fascinated with any of those? Unclear. Uh, So no, uh, Southern Agrarianism was his pri- his primary influence, although the uh, writer of this afterwards is at pains to say that he is not a uh, 100% apologist for the South, but uh, more like he sees it as a baby bathwater s- situation where there's a lot of anti-materialism in Southern uh, agrarianism that he's sad to see um, having been soundly defeated and destroyed by Northern capitalism. A couple other points on this. The, the writer of the afterword talks about his, some undercurrents of Roman Catholicism, which was sort of from a friend of his that he discussed his writing of the book extensively with, chapter by chapter almost. I'm thinking here probably the, the comments about cathedrals, especially. I can see that. Other notable things, uh, you know, he got the endorsement of Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, like the book, gave him a, a blurb for the cover. C.S. Lewis declined to comment, not necessarily out of ideological reasons, or at least not that we know of, but more because he just didn't have time. It was too cool for school. Uh, the other thing that I would mention is the afterward does sort of reiterate again his view of the South and Southern civic religion, or more like religion in the civic space, as again, very much having, we've talked about it before, a functionalist component in that it's it's very much a, sort of a means to stable actors in society and the way to act in society rather than actually believing the truth concepts that it presents. 
Uh, so those were the, the big things that I took away from the afterward. Anything that you guys want to add that jumped out at you that I have not covered? Nothing from, I mean, I, I thought the summary was great. I thought it was really, it was, it was, it was good to see his academic story as he wasn't like, he kind of stumbled into this like post-liberal, proto-American conservative, classical liberal idea. It was more like he just wanted to write about the South and he got, he couldn't get it published since so they were like, hey, why don't you try applying these ideas to the modern time, like to the modern age? And he did it. And it was coming out of like a, a huge amount of personal angst towards like the modern, the modern world. But that wasn't his primary project. And it's just, it's very interesting. That's what he's remembered for. Also, they hated the title and really every other part of the publishing process. It was kind of nice getting a behind the scenes image of the, the process of the book being made and then also the immediate response. Um, it, it just shows the, the amount of effort that comes into making these sort of pieces. It's very easy for us as the readers to kind of see them as these complete packages that, you know, we read through and think, oh my gosh, you know, this person was brilliant. But well, yes, they were brilliant, obviously, but it took a long time for them to come up with all of this. And so it's kind of nice. To, it almost um, kind of rehumanizes a lot of the process, um, and especially with a lot of the backlash that was received. Um, I don't know. It, it, the, the historical refinement process of what gets sifted out and what, get, what, what gets uh, kept, it, it's just an interesting perspective to have. So it was, it was just nice uh, context to have read this book in. Uh, it doesn't really necessarily provide any new ideas in themselves to ponder, but rather just provides context for the book that I really enjoyed. Good. Maybe this moves into a more like critical light, but I don't know. And this could be the, well, the, the university I went to is speaking into this. It's interesting that in all of his pros and cons of the South, the um, elephant in the room of slavery and or Jim Crow does not come up as one of those, those slight cons, which I don't know, it, it like, I, I really like this book. But then there's like, there's little things like that where I'm like, okay, but what is, I guess, what's he seeing? Like, you can say, you know, maybe the bathwater is fine, but can we acknowledge a little bit of the bathwater? Um, is that even a part of it? And I don't, I don't know, I, I was hoping in the afterward that we'd see some indication of that, or at least a recognition of that from him. And there just isn't. Which, um, if anything, oh, sorry. I don't know, I, I, I was gonna ask, like, what do you make of that? Well, it is kind of lamentable in that if anything, the afterward is somebody coming in 20, 30, 40 years after the book is made and kind of providing an apology for why it's still relevant, why you should still read it. And also maybe including some stuff on he was writing in this time. Here's why he may not have addressed this or something like that. And you would mm. you kind of go in there thinking like, well, maybe he's going to address kind of the lamentable opinions he had on jazz or the lamentable opinions he had on women in the workplace or what have you. and. I mean, maybe that's just one of those times where we have to sadly accept, like, no, unfortunately, he was a brilliant uh, author, but wasn't perfect and had his flaws. And that's just kind of that. Yeah, there's just no salvaging that part of his uh, part of his mm -hmm. philosophy, I suppose. Um, yeah. So let's let's go at the cons of uh, or there are negatives of, of this whole uh, process and then and then end up on our positive takeaways. Yeah, definitely. Uh, agree with his rather glaring blind spots in terms of justice where he he, he seems to identify lots of it in various places but not in the one place from which a lot of his ethos derives of what a just society could look like another thing he is a lot less rigorous and systematic than other people that we've worked through and, and that we've read um that's not i don't know like maybe that's not his his project however in the afterward he does talk about how he's lamenting how his work of philosophy is being changed into a work of journalism which mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, like in, in context of Charles Taylor or in context, 
McGilchrist or McIntyre? McGilchrist or McIntyre. It is closer to the journalism side of things than it is to the philosophy side of things. Yeah. You compare like either even other early communitarians. I mean, Michael Sandel is one that comes to mind for me, who's also extremely rigorous in saying a lot of this similar stuff. So, yeah. It, I think it, that's actually one of my issues with it as well. One, one thought that occurred to me, I, I kept hearing that he was the guy that kind of brought the charge against Occam, brought, brought the charge against nominalism, but his only charge was really found in, I think, the forward, and he never really took any serious amount of time to, to really kind of lay the philosophical framework for this is why I think Occam was so wrong in what he did and kind of laying out a history of thought. He just kind of mentioned it in the foreword and then ran with it, which is not the greatest scholarship in the world. I think he mentioned it somewhere else. I, I'm willing to be corrected on that, but you're, you're, you are correct that he never does it systematically, but I do believe that. that yeah, certainly he mentions it again in like, I think chapter five or six or something. One of the later chapters, he does mention it, but again, it's like a three or four sentence commentary and not an in-depth. This is why it went wrong. This is what, what the ideas Occam was working with. This is why he thought it was good, but why he was mistaken. Anything like that, which I think would have really helped bolster his mm -hmm. philosophical framework. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that 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 was kind of frustrating for me too. Is like, is like his anthropology was. I mean, he gave a, a you know a history, but it wasn't very strong. Um, but then when you get into like the the writing process of how a lot of that came out of conversations with his colleagues, is his um who was his Catholic colleague who he was hanging out with. Sorry, I'm trying to find the name. Oh, uh, uh, do them, do them else. They have around it. Which I, that, that sounded familiar. I know I've heard Duhamel or however you pronounce that, that name. Yeah. I know I've heard that somewhere else, but I cannot for the life of me think of where that was. Was Duhamel a, a prominent figure or have either of you heard of him? Because I, I could have sworn I have. I can't think of where. I mean, he's French, so I just kind of assume that he's famous. Yeah, I truly could not tell you. Nor could I. Yeah. Um, other things that I sort of, pulled away um i i think previous people that we've read um or at least worked with so taylor um mcintyre and mcgillchrist here there is they obviously come at things from different angles they have different perspectives on things that are even intention in various ways but they there is a bit of a unity i feel like with them um and maybe that unity you could say is at like a very basic uh you know red team versus blue team is that they cluster around kinds of aristotelianisms um, in various ways and how they want to approach the world and, and, and approach the world uh, being more embodied, as it were, whereas Weaver is very much in a Plato camp. I don't know if Plato would want him to be in his camp, but he but but he says he's on the he's on the he's on the Plato team. He's a he's a Plato guy. He's all about the forms. You know, he he, he just wants the abstract principles to manifest in real life, which I still think is his best concept. I've said it like four times now, but he is sort of coming from a different premise. Like if, uh, you know, if, if you have to pick a place to start and then run forward, I think he's coming from a different place than a lot of other people we, we've liked here. Yeah, I can't help but feel that Taylor, McGilchrist and McIntyre, though they may differ on subtleties, they may differ on a whole range of things, but at the very core of it, I think they'd be furiously nodding with each other. Whereas I'm actually not sure if that's the same case with Weaver. I, I mean, the Gilchrist, I think, would actually strongly disagree with Weaver mm -hmm. on a few points. Yeah. Um, probably more than a few points. I'm not sure about McIntyre and um, Taylor. I think Taylor would probably agree with some of his um, anthropology because from what I understand, Taylor takes Occam's, or the idea of Occam nominalism and kind of runs with that. So they may be yep. in more accord, mm -hmm. but... Uh, McIntyre and Weaver, actually, I wouldn't shock me if they would be 
pretty pretty opposed. Maybe not opposed, but not seriously nodding in agreement in the same way that McIntyre and the Gilchrist, for example, would probably be in agreement with a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and then just to uh, loop back to finishing off my my cons list is uh, I very much on a personal level, though not necessarily on a movement or systematic level, disagree with his sort of virtuous pagan perspective on things. There's a reason they're still in limbo or whatever. They don't get to make it into uh, purgatorio or uh, or or heaven proper uh, because there there is always something deficient when you don't truly believe in something. Um, and so that's that would be my my final negative take on uh, ideas have consequences and where it attempts to come from. Uh, but how about you guys? What are your 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 last line? Someone you know they they are going to read the book, but it but there's a, a better book that they should be reading. What do you say to convince them to read something else instead of this book? I don't you know, know if I'd try to convince them to not read this book. I really don't think I would. I mean, I think that if you're trying, if if they're, it, it depends on who they are. But I think if they're trying to get into, I mean, like philosophy in general, and specifically like this this kind of like political philosophy realm, I think ideas have consequences, and is an essential text. I mean, both because it would of its influence but also because it it's very easy to understand and you can read and you get the the fundamental critique of liberalism very clearly and i don't i mean i would say read this and then go on to something harder i mean you know maybe after virtue maybe read a bit before you read after virtue and make sure you have all your classics under your belt but yeah i don't think there's a problem with reading this i wouldn't try to convince someone not to are you saying there's not a problem with reading sam not a problem with reading weaver i mean beyond his opinion (laughs) of jazz and women i don't know i mean i think that you can i think that if you're reading it as a work of philosophy which is what he wanted to be taken as like you there's 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 something you can get out of this so you should read it i I think i'm gonna actually i'm not even trying to necessarily agree with what i'm about to say but i'm gonna take a slightly more strong take i think about the if somebody comes up to me and says, I want to read a great book that has kind of a philosophical anthropology that kind of shows some of the things that are going wrong with society right now. Let's say that they're your typical conservative doom and gloom. Why is the world so deranged? I think the best thing I could say about Weaver, Contra, McIntyre, and McGilchrist, and let's say Taylor, even though we really technically haven't read Taylor, we've just read some commentary on Taylor. But let's just say those three. I think the thing I would say pro Weaver is that he's short. It's only what I mean. It's like a hundred some pages. It's really not long. Um, you can crack through it in if you're really determined in a week. Um, we've taken a little bit longer, obviously, but I mean that's because we've been really trying to seriously ingest it. But I mean, with McGilchrist, he's going to take forever. With McIntyre, he's going to take forever. Um, they're also. I think McGilchrist is probably a little more fun to read, but they're both just so dense and, and it just takes forever. And the, I've heard t- uh, Taylor is actually a terrible writer in that he he never stays on topic and he's really difficult to read. So I think pro Weaver would be he's short. But other than that, I I think even then it, I would rather I would say I'd rather go with like amusing ourselves to death. Um, I think I got a lot more out of that than it didn't necessarily provide a as robust an anthropology as Weaver, but then again, at least uh, Postman isn't necessarily trying to do an anthropology, whereas Weaver is attempting to, and we've criticized him so far pretty heavily on that. And so if we're going for brevity, I think I would actually rather go with Postman or Elul, which hopefully we will soon, and we'll be able to actually uh, do maybe a a bit more of a kind of stiff comparison. 
Um, I enjoyed Weaver. I think he's certainly worth reading, but maybe it's just after like, comparing him to McIntyre and McGillicris, to be fair, is pretty rough. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think maybe I'm just spoiled in that. Yeah, if you're going to give me a philosophical anthropology, giving McIntyre, giving McGillicris, Weaver just doesn't quite hold up. All right. Well, then let's shift over to uh, our, 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 our pros, our biggest takeaways, positives from Ideas Have Consequences. And I will just say three very briefly. First is the idea of uh, tradition as a way for symbols and abstract ideas to manifest in reality. I think that's a brilliant idea of a way of populating a otherwise stark world with meaning and infusing that directly into the world. Now, I don't quite believe, I think, in the meaninglessness of the world otherwise that Weaver seems to describe. I think things are more embodied actually, and you don't need to just pretend with symbols. Uh, But nevertheless, it's a very powerful idea. The second thing that I would say is, and this is one that stuck with me, and I don't know if it's properly attributed here. I don't recall, but I'm going to just attribute it anyway. Is uh, the idea is just his is anthropology talking about individuals in capitalist egalitarian society where no one knows how to relate to any other single person and the downsides of that. Now, obviously, you know there are a lot of downsides to feudalism too, but there is something interesting about the idea in which you know how to relate to all the other people around you as opposed to the confusion of the modern world. And you know, there's. I probably prefer the modern world, all things considered, because statistically, I would be a peasant and I probably wouldn't like that. Nevertheless, there's something to be captured in what's lost in the transition there um, that, you know, po- uh, positives and negatives to both. Um, and if we're smart, hopefully we can get all of the positives and none of the negatives. We'll see. Um, well, no, that was very progressive of me to say. Never mind. Things will always suck. Uh, forget I said that. Uh, and then the final thing is, uh, while while his uh, jazz uh, opinions, we have thoroughly uh, trounced him about the crown, I would give, I don't know if I'd give a pinky, but I, I, I definitely give some like fingernail clippings to hear him, like force him to listen to modern music and have him review it. And just write down his honest thoughts. I think that would be very entertaining because if, if if he thought like relatively mild and like chill jazz was bad, I can't even imagine what he would say about like he would just straight up attribute it to demons, and he would finally like convert to a real religion. It would be great. What 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 are you picturing? Like you're gonna you're gonna stick some headphones on this guy. What are you putting on? Ooh, this is a good question. Uh, probably so. I'd probably do like a fast cut and y'all can help me with what would go here. But obviously like we have to just put things that are, em- that are like emblematic of different parts of the age. So like Cardi uh, B 100%. Yeah. Cardi B yeah. some, some like Justin Bieber, like early, like super high prepubescent uh, voices, like whatever the CIA used to torture people in uh, like black sites, like whatever they played for those. Uh, then we also definitely need to have like some Skrillex, like early dubstep when it was just like mostly like atonal, and like didn't even I mean, not that the more recent stuff is like that much better. And then uh we also as much as I like Billy Eilish, there are some of those that like it would generally hor- it would genuinely horrify him. Horrify I, him. I know. Um I, I don't know. And it's like death metal. Yeah, right? that's that's yeah. the obvious one, but yeah, yeah. Mm. No, but like in the middle of all of that, and like this is what people listen to, and just like in quick succession, he won't be able to find any kind of consistency. And an order, and that's his. I mean, that's his problem with jazz, right? It's not. I mean, he he he. Well, no, he had problems with jazz all over the place, but his primary problem with it was the lack of order. And then we and end. So, 
by forcing him to listen to the entire soundtrack of Hamilton, and he will just lose his mind. <laughs> and then, no, <laughs> Stephen is laughing. Listen- oh, that's great! That's gold. <laughs> I thought you liked Hamilton, Brevin. When I was in high school, I've, I've grown to hate it. When um, you were in high school, it, was- it wasn't out when you were in high school. It wasn't out when you were in college. Fine. No, yes, it was out when I was in college. In, oh, in college, it was out like, when I was in high school. I just, I just like, uh, no, How I thought it been out. I thought it was out in like my last 2015. year. I think it was 2015. out. Twenty fifteen. Really? That seems late. I was in college in twenty fifteen. I don't think it was out in twenty fifteen. No, it, well, there's no way. It came out no, in December no. twenty fifteen. Are you sure? That's when I first listened to it. I'm hallucinating then because I swear that it's like, January twentieth, but still your point stands. No, uh, because wait, oh yeah, no. That's even early, January twentieth, twenty fifteen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's. Okay, I was that, in that makes slightly more sense. Yeah, I was just freshman year of college, so that was just just starting up. Um, but no, like I remember, like basically the entire Hamilton soundtrack was the first like forty five things that I liked on my Spotify account. So I could never hit play all on my liked songs because it was just always be Hamilton all the time. So recently I finally went and unliked every single Hamilton song off of my liked songs on Spotify. Did a small part of you die when you did that? No. Well, yes. Part of me did, but it was the past and it had to die. Kill the past, let it die. Or no, wait. Let the past die, kill it if you have to. And I am better for it. Um, Yeah. Yes, because we're all better off for having killed the past and forgotten about it, as Weaver has notably said. I'm pretty sure that was his... I'm pretty sure that was his main point. Yep, central thesis. Yeah. All right. Top positives for you from uh, ideas have consequences. Um, I mean, I kind of already said it. Like, it is a really, a really easy to digest critique of liberalism that you could build off of um, by reading more substantive works. Mm-hmm. I also think that at least the first half of his egoism in work and art chapter is really good. I mean, the needs of community, even in work and in vocation. I mean, Miguel Christ does it better, but the. But the point. Okay, but 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 if you're not willing there. to read a yeah, know, no, fair. Yeah. forty a, a four a four hundred word or a four hundred page essay on neuroscience, like it's really it's really good to read this. It, it really hammers home the point of the necessity of community, mm. and I'd say that, that is probably. I mean, there's a lot lacking in like our generation, but I think the lack of understanding of what it means to seek and desire a true community. Um, I, I, I think that's a big. That's one of the larger deficits. And this chapter combats that very effectively. So yeah, Sam, and and I just add that, and, and this is the function of the book for me in my own philosophical journey. While there were you know only one or two things that I took away from it permanently, it did just help provide sort of a web of concepts and ideas that are expressed in other places, but they're all sort of just next to each other. And then you can mm-hmm. take those and build off in different directions uh, and build a more stable yeah. structure than Weaver does himself. Yeah, yeah, I think. I think that is somewhat my, maybe my favorite part of him is maybe him as a forerunner. Because, I mean, he's also writing much earlier than some of our favorite thinkers are writing. And so I think there is something to be said for, yeah, sure, he's going to be a little bit rougher because they're building on his shoulders. Uh, he is kind of one of the first to start trying to figure out what, what, what the heck is going on with modern society. Why does it seem to be falling apart? Maybe it has something to do with the philosophical framework that our society is structured under. And so I, I think there really is something to be said for him kind of kicking off a lot of this uh, this process. Although, to be fair, he opens up with saying, this is yet another book discussing the fall of the West. So it's not like he's the first one doing it, but it does seem that this is one of the first, maybe, shall we say, serious accounts of that. And I think there is something to be said and certainly something to be um, saluted for providing us with this. Um, just taking 
seriously the ideas that have made our society and understanding that these ideas don't remain in abstract. They actually do end up implanted in society as a whole. And that has real, not to be too cute, but consequences. Also, his, um, I think the book is, it gives a very valuable um, philosophical foundation for the right. Like there was something in the, um, in the afterward talking about how it stood alongside um, Hayek's Road to Serfdom, which was the economic and like political foundation of the, I guess, what became the Republican consensus. And so it's, it is good to read that, at least along with that straight critique of communism, there was also this undercurrent of uh, against um, uh, extreme capitalism and individualism, even if this side didn't necessarily win out in the public square. So I, I definitely think that you're right, that ideas can sort of become embedded in society, sort of take on more and more meaning over time, shape things around them. Ideas have consequences. And one idea that's had consequence is the idea of human dignity, which our own Alistair McIntyre spoke about at the Notre Dame Ethics Conference here in the year of our Lord, 2021. And Stephen and Sam, who have both viewed, one in person, one online, McIntyre's lecture entitled Something Something That They'll Tell You in a Minute, because again, I haven't watched the lecture. Uh, they're going to they're gonna talk about it. So uh, boys, the floor is yours. Indeed. So at the University of Our Lady, which I actually just put two and two together that Notre Dame, Our Lady. That, that was kind of a nice little little revelation for me this week. Uh, but yes, at uh, the University of Notre Dame, every year there is a, uh, a fall ethics conference uh, at the Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture. And every year, indeed, uh, Alistair McIntyre presents the keynote address, or either keynote or a keynote adjacent uh, address. And this year was certainly no exception. I guess the only exception was last year for obvious reasons. So his paper entitled Human Dignity, a Puzzling and Possibly Dangerous Idea, uh, he presented it. And it seemed to be a lot of kind of the last chapter of After, Vir After Virtue Revisited, in which he explores the idea of, is this concept as useful or as important as we think it is, similar to human rights? So if uh, listeners will recall our discussion on the last chapter of After Virtue, uh, McIntyre likens uh, rights to moral fictions that we tell ourselves. That when we have gotten as a society to a point where we can no longer have ethical conversations, we kind of start throwing rights at each other. And the problem is we have incommensurable rights. Um, one perfect example of this is the concept of abortion. Uh, the right of the mother to choose, the right of the mother to live, and both pro-choice and pro-life will kind of hurl these uh, these rights at each other and completely, of course, miss each other. And so uh, McIntyre, in essence, traces out the concept of human dignity and says that this is the exact same thing. Uh, particularly, uh, he says in the 1940s, when lots of different groups were, for obvious reasons, trying to reconcile and trying to kind of figure out how the world is going to go on further, they had vastly different ideas, vastly different philosophical frameworks. And so he contends that dignity was primarily used as the middle ground that they could all kind of unite under the banner that, well, we may disagree on everything, but with one thing we can agree on, humans are dignified and we need to treat them with dignity and kind of just let's keep saying dignity until everything sticks. And so he argues that Dignity is a useful moral fiction that we may tell ourselves. However, the better question is not, will this give people dignity? But rather, is this just? Uh, shockingly enough, let's retreat back to the virtues where we can actually have some ethical conversations. Um, he goes into a lot of other things, but I've talked on 
enough, uh, Sam. But uh, you, I, I went in person. Uh, Sam, you listened uh, to his recorded lecture online. Yeah. What did you think? I mean, I thought it was great. It, yeah, I, I mean, we talked about this before the show, but I, uh, I had never really questioned the concept of dignity before. It, it just seemed kind of like a, a no-brainer. Like, obviously, yeah, we're all human dignity. That's important, and that's a good thing that we can all agree on. So let's work with that. And so it was fascinating to see him. I mean, just take it apart and and look at all the different ways that it is meaningless and it doesn't actually serve your needs and it isn't logically consistent. I mean. Yeah, it was very, very good. Very well argued. Um, some of his uh, particularly good examples. I have all these. I have like three pages of notes. I have a Stephen, Stephen like quantity of notes for this hour long lecture. So, oh, this makes me happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like him. I mean, he 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 spoke autobiographically, which may have been a little bit tongue in cheek, but talking about how like growing up, he was taught to respect people and treat people decently, but he never heard the word dignity until it showed up in the Irish constitution. And and even then it was based in justice. And so he's like, okay, well, dignity is also not in the Bible. Like we now translate it into the Bible um, or mistranslate it, but it was never there. Um, and it was never in any classical writing except for a little bit in Cicero. And I mean, even just that observation calls in, once you start to pull at the threads, you realize how much of our modern existence is held together by this like tacit um, assumption of dignity. And yet it is completely insufficient. Um, I mean, he gives a negative example, I guess, of, of like a wounded stranger on the side of the road. And he's like, do we have to, do we aid them because they're, uh, they're human? Well, if it's a horse, well, we're morally obliged. If, I mean, if there's a wounded horse, we're morally obliged to help that um, if we can. So therefore there's something else going on here. That's not just the human element. Um, and it really, I don't know, that, that was in the earlier part of his speech. Later in his speech, he hit at home with looking at different policy prescriptions where he was talking about, um, I mean, abortion and, uh, and what it means to oppose that and how completely incommensurate it is to, to assert human dignity. Therefore, we must do this particular thing, but then neglect, um, neglect the life of the child and the education of the child and the support of the parents and the family and the community around the child and all that is just thrown out the window. And I guess when you when you um, pull the concept of dignity out there and you can't just point fingers at dignity, it it sounds absolutely absurd. Or his um, to go back to um, Weaver and maybe this is maybe this is a problem with Weaver. His conversation on slavery, where McIntyre is talking about how you if you free slaves on the basis of dignity, you free you 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 do the action of emancipation, and you are not obliged to do any more because you have respected their dignity. But you're putting them into a society that is not um, that is not welcoming and without any kind of support. That it's self the dignity is self defeating, and so he he changes that, or I guess he gives another thought experiment of what if we were to free slaves on the basis of the common good, based in the virtues, and that. Moral, you're morally obliged just as much to freedom as to give as to give them a part of your plantation, um, which changes the picture entirely. Um, yeah, it was um, it was very good. So I know I've gone too long, but it's it's good. It's tragic that we do not view the world this way. And he sounded, I mean, for for someone who's as old as he is, it was sad to see him so pessimistic at the end of his talk, where he's like, "Yeah, we're 
I mean, he, he looks at the, what, 1992 Catholic Catechism and, and is like, yeah, there, we're still, we're still talking about dignity. And yeah, it has the moral requirements, like, because God commands. And if you're a Catholic, because the Catholic Church says God commands. But beyond that, it's, it's left up to dignity. And you can't have a conversation about these things unless you defer to something um, such as justice. And we are not doing that. And so therefore, we will fall into the trap that the post-war world fell into. So it's tragic. And I don't see any stopping it. So yeah, I went really, on for way too long. No, no, that was great. Uh, it, no, it just... It, what you said, it's tragic that his opinion hasn't changed in the last 50 years of from moral incommensurability uh, around rights-based language to now um, dignity. Unfortunately, this is just kind of another instance of we can't we can't have ethical conversations with each other, uh, which is certainly okay. troubling. Um, he has uh, maybe you remember it better. Um, he has a, the one great line with um, Goebbels and Stalin. He's like, why? Why would we like justice demands that we treat them, giving them their due? not not dignity are you really going to say that those two were dignified like are, are you really going to say that those two mm-hmm. like acted like humans or, or what have you or I, I forget what exactly it was but i, I remember mm-hmm. being quite impressed with that line um yeah it was just on the whole it was an excellent speech uh yeah yeah and on, on the whole the the conference itself uh as always was was quite good though it's hilarious mm-hmm. because all these philosophers all these ethicists and lawyers and when i come in and they're all like touting how great dignity is, even though they all have like 50 different definitions for what they think dignity is and how everyone is, has inherent dignity. No, they have possible de- uh, dignity that they can uh, attain, or, uh, attain, which is seemingly more McIntyre slash Thomistic uh, view. Uh, but then McIntyre walks in and says like, yeah, you're all wrong. And especially hilarious, the philosophers after McIntyre's speech who are all like scrambling to try to like, adding all sorts of qualifications to try to account for what McIntyre just said. It is amazing. Just seeing this old guy get up there and like say some things that he said 30 years ago, 40 mm-hmm. years ago, and then leave and, and just watch the con- the conference go to shambles. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly <laughs> what happens. It is, that's, it is just supreme. That's gotta be so sad for him though, because he's like, I told you this mm. before. I mean, that that's the problem. That's the problem, problem with, with reading. philosophizing. philosophizing. The problem with not the problem with not reading McIntyre. They've all read McIntyre. Yeah, that's the thing is they all have read McIntyre. And really, I mean, like it's funny because I I saw his title and I was like, oh, I I bet you he's going to do the McIntyre thing. Dignity is the same as rights. We're using the wrong language. Blah blah blah. And I am kind of surprised that none of the philosophers at least tried to take into account like what he was probably going to say about it. It looked like most of the other major speeches were about like anti-dignity at least when i looked at the schedule they weren't no most of it well so with a lot of these talks like you get the general theme and what you get is about half the papers half the talks are on more or less that theme and then the other half have like clearly shoehorned the uh the theme in which is fine i mean every every ethicist every philosopher kind of has their shtick and if they can kind of get it to fit in you get a cool talk that's may or may not be related and i mean that that can work out great or it can work out Mm -hmm. just kind of cringe like yeah this wasn't really this wasn't really what the conference was about but whatever Mm -hmm. but what about a lot of them were were very kind of pro-dignity really what about this this, this keynote i mean i saw it was was one the video right below mcintyre's the utter incoherence of the vision of human dignity underpinning disability law and policy by elizabeth uh schilt uh so that one was that was a that was a great really enjoyed it but that one was just more how uh disability law sucks 
and how it's really difficult to navigate and doesn't do credit to people who are in most desperate need for it, which I think we've actually we've actually done this topic ourselves before, and I am 100% on board with her. Yep. But if she's arguing from a dignity perspective, a la McIntyre, or contra McIntyre, she's wrong. She should have been arguing from a justice perspective. But that wouldn't necessarily be fitting in with the theme of, you know, the Nicholas Center. So uh, maybe she wouldn't have gotten accepted if she hadn't used dignity language. Which, again, I just find hilarious that, like, McIntyre says, oh, your theme's on dignity? Okay, I'm going to tell you why you all suck at this. Um, but all that to say, the um, uh, yeah, that, that keynote, it was more on just why why the laws suck and why they're not conducive for the dignity of human beings. It was that one was much more uh, applied philosophy, let's say. Um, I think she was one of them was a disability rights advocate. And the other one I want to say was a lawyer um, or taught law right. or so, something to that effect. Um, so it definitely wasn't analytic or technical philosophy, but was more practical. Like this is what's wrong with all the laws, which again, I'm 100% on board with her. But I uh, wasn't necessarily like hardcore philosophy, I would say. Um, what are the problems with, I mean, not problems, but I guess, are there any critiques that we have of McIntyre's talk uh, at all? I mean, the one pill that's hard to swallow with this is being able to lose dignity. Is like, how do we treat people? Like, how do we treat people who have done undignified things or, or have undignified themselves? I mean, I guess if we don't have necessarily an understanding of justice and our society is truly um, morally bankrupt. I mean, how do you, if you, if you then take out the last plank of dignity, how do you treat those millions of people who are not deserving or are not reflecting dignitas? Uh, not even how do you, because you're a Christian, but how do you, how, how do you even ask society to treat them? Well, maybe that's one of the, getting back to the moral fictions that we tell ourselves with rights. Maybe that's just kind of another moral fiction where, Look, this is where we're at in a society where it sucks, but that's just kind of the, it's almost real politic, except with ethics, um, where we're just going to lie to the masses and hope they buy this nonsense about rights and dignity, because that's about the best we can do. Um, one of my friends was reading this book, I, free, I forget what it was, but in essence, uh, kind of almost leaning in and saying like, yeah, no, rights are completely like they're false. So they're, they're not an actual thing. We don't care. I think honestly coming at it from uh, from an atheist perspective, but they're just kind of doubling down and saying like, yeah, but they make life a lot better. And so why wouldn't we want them? Um, which kind of shows the, the sad state of ethical affairs that we're in. All right. Well, that sounds like we might be at a stopping point of the special Stephen Sam special. Uh, is that about right, boys? All wrapped up? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think so. Wow, that was a depressing note to end on. Man, yeah, I, I really wanted more. Like, I... I why didn't you guys talk more? Like that was really. Why didn't you keep? Go oh man, I, I'm getting mad. And when one is mad, one rants. Uh, Steven, what do you got? Uh, I'm trying to think of a of a good rant. Okay, so note to Brevin, splice this part out. Um, so we we just talked about McIntyre's talk. We didn't talk about the the Notre Dame ethics conference on a whole. So we didn't get into the whole. I have COVID and went to uh, a COVID thing. I had a rant at least. Make that your roughly rant. Roughly yeah. tertiarily related yeah, make that to your that. rant. Okay, so make that my rant, and yeah. I guess I'm going to have to tell the whole story. Okay. <sighs> so I, I've i gotten canceled enough on this, or hypothetically canceled. We don't have enough viewers to actually cancel me, which is nice, because I've shot myself in the foot yet again with rela related to COVID. So, but this one, I'm bringing Sam down with me. Um, <laughs> Sam just did a glorious double take. Uh, so uh, last week, the, the Notre Dame Ethics Conference is coming up, and I come down with, uh, with, a, with a cold. And... 
Uh, I am convinced this is a cold. Like, this is definitely cold. There's a seasonal cold going around. It's going around campus. And I'm like, it's it's fine, right? I'm definitely going to be fine. Like, I, I I haven't lost my taste of smell. I haven't lost, or my, my sense of smell. I haven't lost my sense of taste. It feels like a cold. I just have some sniffles and I have, you know, a, a cough. Like, that's, that's it. That's a cold. And I'm playing Factorio with Sam. And Sam's like, oh, come on. Yeah, just make sure to use lots of hand sanitizer and, and, and wear a mask. And I'm like, that's a good idea, Sam. So while it's my own moral responsibility, and I must take responsibility for that, I will also punch some responsibility. Um, but in any case, I get a test just to be safe. And uh, But that, that test is, uh, you know, two to seven days. And that sucks. And so I signed up for, uh, for an instant speed test uh, on, on the Thursday, which is when I leave. And I get a text that day saying, hey, it's Veterans Day. So unfortunately, we can't give you that, that, that test. Uh, so I'm like, okay, no, it's fine. I really feel fine. I feel on the mend even. Like, I feel like I'm getting better. So I go, I go to the conference and everything's great. And I'm having so much fun learning from all these learned philosophers. And I sit down in the last session and I get an email saying, hey, your test results are in. I'm like, okay, great. So finally, some peace of mind. Open the email, click on the link. I have COVID. And so all of these learned philosophers that I respect immensely, I have exposed to our favorite 21st century plague. And moreover, also my dear friends whom I have gone to this conference uh, for quite a lot or quite, quite often, I've exposed all of them and in turn their significant others and one of their children or and, and one of their, the, the family, ooh, the guys, he has two kids. So that was great. So of course, immediately, like I get up and leave, I tell them all. And here is where I'll start ranting because these guys were great about it. Um, I spent about an hour, hour and a half wandering outside kind of session to get out and kind of, you know, you know, those scenarios you you pump through your heads about like, they're all going to get super pissed at me and like, understandably so. And I, I don't really have any excuse other than I'm sorry, guys, I thought it was cold and I really wanted to go. But yeah, I did endanger all of you and really sorry. And just kind of uh, it, it was one of those moments where I'm just completely at their mercy. And indeed, they did the great thing and they just showed a lot of mercy. And like, nope, we know this means a lot to you. We all knew the risks and this is just kind of the situation and that's fine. Um, so my rant, uh, good friends that are willing to, uh, to show quite a lot of uh, class and grace. Uh, even when you expose them all to uh, the 21st century plague. So good on you guys. I hope uh, none of you get it. Well, I already know one of them already tested positive, but to be fair, his kid had been positively exposed as well. So that's, that one's kind of up for grabs, but hopefully all of you guys don't get it. And if you do, hopefully, and hopefully I didn't give it to McIntyre or any other philosopher. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the truly great loss is like, sure, your friends might get it, but they're all young, hale and hearty, I'm sure. But the real crime that you've committed here, Stephen, is you have single-handedly slayed the last moral philosopher, the last great moral philosopher in in the West with your with your germy mouth. You you alone have murdered Alistair McIntyre and will uh, have to go to your grave knowing that you made his. Okay, just for the record, I was sitting in the back of the conference room with a mask on. He was at the very front. There, I, so what he, you're saying is that you were closest to the air circulation that blew it all the way across the room. If you had been in the middle, you know, it would have just stayed right there. But no, you had to sit at the back right next to the HVAC, and you just send that those tiny droplets, so insignificant, such small things compared to grand ideas like human dignity and rights and uh virtue but no that that's all that it took to finally bring him down you know that you wasn't wearing a mask and steven steven you already got him because i watched the video 
he coughed a couple times, and he was drinking that water like every two minutes. You remember? Gotcha. How was it? I hate you all. He's you guys are the worst. Also, Sam, you 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 said I should go. It, it, it's not my fault. It's Sam's fault. I'll just I'll do the the brilliant politician thing and just punt it. Well, speaking of punting, I I, I cannot confirm nor deny that I said that. <laughs> It depends on the meaning of is, is. What's the meaning of is, is? <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. Sam, your rant. My rant. Okay. Um, crap. It's going to be one of those those reflections. So I was, I said my mom was in town. We, we know um, to expect no, no, no. at this point. Yeah. Sam, okay. Sam's and music. I, and Sam's I, music and section I, um, time. <laughs> and now we, so we visited one of the finest institutions in New York City, which is um, the Metropolitan Museum Art. Uh, which was which was great. It was her first time going, and my mom does not frequent art museums, and she had a great time. And so we saw a large chunk of museum, which was no small feat, and um, our legs were definitely feeling it at the end. But they had this uh, special exhibit going on of surrealism, and my and my wife likes modern art generally, and it, and uh, there are a few surrealists that she enjoys, and so she's like, we got we got to go to this. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Let's let's you know check it out. It's the special exhibit, I mean, I'll, I'll probably learn something. And we go in, and the first couple paintings are are interesting. I mean, surreal, and they're kind of exploring what the idea behind surrealism is, which is like looking at like dreamscapes and looking at, you know, distortions of reality and making political points with it, but also um, like drawing interesting connections. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of fun, like interesting stuff. And, and some were really intriguing. And as we went through the exhibit, the walls for this special exhibit got darker and darker and the paintings got more incomprehensible and more self-referential and um and then i started reading more like the plaques most people were like political activists in different um south american countries which is which is interesting and then started to learn that many of them started to join the occult and but it it just left all of us with a very unsettling feeling of this um of, of this very uncanny art so I've been thinking about that a bit, and it it definitely proves McGillicris' um, point. It's like, yeah, you sure you can make an argument, but if you're all trapped inside the left brain, it's just going to be self-referential. And it was, it was. I've never viscerally experienced something that was self-referential and referring to itself and re- and and um, dependent so much on repetition and creating novelty out of familiarity and to the point where it was literally tearing itself apart, which was probably the most interesting piece in the entire exhibit was the Salvador Dali at the very end, which was a, a creature that was um, constructed to tear itself apart. And he was painted in just kind of observing it passively, um, which I thought was... I mean, I mean, he, I thought that was probably the most in, interesting or insightful piece of the entire exhibit. So it was, um, it was depressing, unsettling, and I was happy to walk through and see some great um, Byzantine icons immediately after that. Orthox saved the day again. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, my question is just, like, are people who make modern art like that, like, are they possessed by demons or like can demons like actually take the form of art pieces because like i I, i'm I'm really conflicted about whether it's like a creation of demonic forces or whether it's like an actual manifestation of demonic forces i don't know sam what do you think i think it involves some sort of possession of demonic forces because i mean at least some of them the other ones were i mean i don't know it's just many of them i wasn't necessarily like this is disgusting it was more like it's just it's it this is missing a foundation it's like i I understand that you're you're fighting for liberation and revolution and all that and that's 
probably good and Nazis are not good. So good on you for, for creating this um, in opposition to their um, harsh perfectionism. But it just it just lacks the foundation. And I guess for me, it was like I, I it was I, I felt thought it was more of an extension of like impressionism moving into even like bits of cubism. But I mean, cubism has its problems, but I think it's interesting enough. I mean, I'll look at Picasso. But I mean, we had just been in impressionism and, you know, rooms and rooms of Monet and and Van Gogh and stuff. And that was, which, which we've all agreed is beautiful. So I, I thought of it more, it was going to be more of an extension of that into the dreamscape and it was not at all. Are there any modern, modern as in like the modern times or contemporary artists that are doing anything even close to Monet, Monet, like just kind of old school, I'm going to paint something beautiful and it's going to be beautiful and people will like it. Or, or, I mean, are there any artists that are doing that now? I, I, think not a, I mean, I mean, probably people are, but you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the problems, at least as far as I can observe. And then I'm, I'm certain that my wife will come in here and tell me that this is an incorrect theory of art. Is that I mean, like those, like the impressionist movement was a movement, and like it wouldn't make much sense to paint in that style now. Like it was, I mean, because even even you look at people in the late eighteen nineties, and it's already shifted rapidly, and it was just already out of fashion. And I don't know, it was just a rare moment where they were really able to hit on something that was truly glorious and beautiful, um, but it wasn't able to sustain itself. <sighs> All right. Well, uh, for my rant, I want to touch on uh, sort of more like a serious matter. I, I think sort of like a like sort of a justice issue. Uh, so this is an, based on an article from the New York Times uh, called "The Married Will Soon Be the Minority." Um, and so this article sort of goes into uh, some census data, you know, showing that in 2019, the share of American adults who are neither married nor living with a partner was, I think, 38 percent. And obviously, you know, this means fewer people married, fewer kids. Um, but the interesting angle of this article is that it, it really is like a, about fairness and about our society and, and uh, about justice and the uh, and the, uh, the the writer Charles Blow is asking you know should marriage always be the ideal and one of his big questions is that there's this uh, that single people have to pay uh, what he calls a loner tax and there's a study or an analysis by some people talking about how just like due to various tax cuts and the way that our systems are our, our society is set up that over the lifetime unmarried people can pay like upwards of even like $1 million more than married counterparts for healthcare, for taxes, uh, and more. And obviously that's, you know, that's a lot of money. And so like Stephen pointed out, uh, you know, based on the premise, like will married people be the minority? Uh, uh, even if marriage is the briefly a minority, uh, you know, like that Darwin sorts out the problem pretty fast, uh, which is fair. But I mean, for my take on this, you know, like, you know, I know lots of unmarried people. I, I, Un unmarried people paying a million dollars extra in taxes and services and fees like that just seems a bit unfair to me and like my only question going away from this article is how can we get that to five million like when god says justice is mine you know he 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 means that he will personally handle like the excruciating eternal punishment for single tech bros with no stake in the future in the afterlife but see we're also called to be the kingdom of heaven on earth so it's our duty to punish them in this life too and wring every single last cent out of their non-reproducing lizard skulls so we can build more playgrounds and jungle gyms. So anyway, that's just my rant. You know, I, I just wanted to bring this to your guys' attention. Um, yeah, that's what I got. As a single guy that sent you that article, I hard... <laughs> you... <laughs> uh, say that again, Stephen, because it cut out. No, as the single guy who sent you that article, I heartily agree. Perfect. Good.
<laughs> I love how you. <laughs> uh, I like our group chat. It makes me happy. All right. Uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, let's tack singleness into oblivion. There's an idea that has a consequence. A good one. Perfect circle. Nice to join in. Someone just informed me that, which is correct, that I have beta access to Halo Infinite multiplayer. Everyone does. I think I, everyone I does. This afternoon. I think I'm going to do that this evening. Wait, how do we have that? It's on Steam. You should start the download. Um, you should do that. But uh, Halo Infinite. Yeah. Let me do a little lookup.